Guess what, Bumbaclut Chicken Butt? Bumbaclut Chicken Butt. Bumbaclut Chicken Butt. It's your old chuckle buddy. Guess who? Jonathan James Ramcharan. Reporting live for duty on this magnificent May 22nd in the year of our Lord, 2020. Welcome and bienvenue to Jonathan Ramcharan, the podcast. What's up, folks? How the hell are you doing? If you're new to this show, JR the P, Jonathan Ramcharan, the podcast, this is a show. And you can tell everybody that this is a show where I talk about myself in order to relate to y'all self, yourself, you the dear listener, y'all the dear viewers, you know, shared experiences, kindred souls, best friends forever, you know, guilt trips, you know, the whole kit and caboodle, a real relationship. And it's much needed in this time of pandemic. We're cooped up like a bunch of chickens. Cooped up like a bunch of chickens in a coop due to pandemic. So, you know, much needed. A little connectivity. I would like to also give a couple very special shout outs on this episode. I want to give a shout out to my man, S, the delivery driver. S. What's going on, player? S, the delivery driver. Uh, he's a very avid listener to the show. And at the moment, he's going through some tough times. And, um, you know, a nice little shout out, I hope can go a long way. I definitely appreciate your listenership, your viewership. So S, the delivery driver, all the best to you, my friend. And, you know, keep your chin up. Keep your, somebody said this once, it's like, Keep your balls on your, keep on the balls of your toes and your balls on your chin. <laughs> Something like that. Anyway, keep your head up, player. S, the delivery driver. And I'd also like to give a shout out to T. Dot Yankee. He's a Yankee. My father was a Yankee. Fuck Casper Kovacs and fuck the fucking Diaz brothers. Fuck them all. I buried them cockroaches. What do you think? You're good. You're no good. He just know how to hide, how to lie. He was a Yankee. <laughs> I want to give a shout out to T. Yankee, um, pal of mine, listener to the show. He's off to a very exciting new journey in his life. And um, during this time of pandemic, we can all use change, growth, journey, you know, assessment of what we need, what we don't need. So, T. Yankee, T. Yankee, um, shout out to you, my friend. All the best to you on your new journey. Hallelujah. So, if you're new to the show, Jonathan Ramshaw on the podcast, I am an actor extraordinaire. 19 years of service, diploma in theater arts. That's been to the bone, ladies and gentlemen, and damn proud of it. Um, I'm cool. I finally reached a place of cool. You know, you go through so many years of, you know, fraud syndrome, imposter syndrome, doubt, fear, anger, aggression. These are tenements of the dark side. You know, you go through all that shit, right? As a performer, lousy, low down, shiftless, rotten, spineless, good for nothing. Nah, you look at you, you lay about, you louse about, you bubble guppy. You ain't worth two cents. You ain't, re- you ain't worth a red cent. You know, you're garbage, you're dog dick god-awful, you know? 
you get all these things in your mind, right? And finally today, where I sit before you, May 22nd, 2020, I'm cool. Cool as a cucumber. It, took, it takes some time, right? Because uh, I was naive. You know, whenever you watch actors um, talk about being an actor, they always got some windbag runabout. Oh, yes, well, um, you know, uh, how did I get into acting? Oh, yes, um, well, um, it was the summer of, I think it was my sophomore year, and um, I, I'd broken my foot. I was the captain of the football team, and I had broken my foot in a, in a, in a scrum, and I was on a cast, and I was on a cast in crutches for a couple of weeks, and um, I walked into the drama auditorium, the drama auditorium. Uh, how do you say that word? Ah, fuck it, whatever. The drama auditorium. I'd walked into it, and there was a bunch of women. It was nothing but women, and I was like, "Hey, this could work for me," you know. So that's how I got into theater. You know, there was a bunch of women, and you know, I figured, why not make some money, meet some women. I always got some fucking Dr. Seuss, Mother Goose, Cat in the Hat, fake-ass fucking dummy, dilettante, dipshit fucking excuse for how they became an actor. It was always so glorious. I was just a fucking idiot. I was a bonehead, depressed theater geek. You know, I found something that made me feel good. Started doing it. Didn't even have an inkling that you could get pussy from it. Didn't have an inkling about making a dollar. I, I, I didn't know. I don't know. Hell. Just wanted to feel good for once in my fucking life. You know what I mean? I don't have no fucking Dr. Seuss, Mother Goose, Cat in the Hat, fucking fake ass. Oh, oh yes, well, um, you know, it, well, it was the, you know, um, how did I become an actor? Well, um, yes, uh, you know, I was sitting around contemplating, you know, the meaning of creativity and art in this day and age. And um, I just always felt like I was different and special and I had something to emote and to share with the public. So I thought I would, you know, take the journey, take the journey to become an artist and really flush out what it means to, you know, emote true emotion to my character work and to my inner life and my characterizations. And, um, oh, the women, of course, the women. Uh, you know, there's always women in theater, so I figured, why not? Fucking swarmy, fucking dickhead, right? I never did any of that shit. I was a fucking theater geek. Theater nerd. I didn't know any damn better. You know? Wanted to be a fucking comedian. Actor. You know? Have a little fun. <laughs> I was watching um, a great documentary recently. Jim and Andy, The Great Beyond. Jim and Andy, The Great Beyond. That was kind of hard to do. You ever drink a coffee with sunglasses on? Actors have to do it all the time when they're sitting cross-legged on a Tonight Show with their sunglasses on. Then they have to reach over and sip from their Tonight Show mug. Oh. Ah, oh, fuck, it smudged my glasses. Oh, I can't have any of that. I'm an artist. Fucking dillweed. Anyways, Jim and Andy, The Great Beyond. Um, it's a great documentary. It chronicles Jim Carrey. Box office sensation, international comedic icon, Jim Carrey. It chronicles his time uh, filming Man on the Moon, the Andy Kaufman biopic. 
right? Andy Kaufman, famed comedian, actor, SNL, Taxi, you know, his own comedy specials, Andy Kaufman, right? So it was a biopic that Jim Carrey was doing, and uh, he was really into the character of Andy, Andy Kaufman. Like in the documentary, Jim and Andy, Jim was talking about how at the beginning of production, he kind of like channeled the cosmos in a sense. And, and I don't know, something like the spirit of Andy Kaufman came to him. And he was just living in that character. Thank you very much. I am the weird little foreign man. Thank you very much. Going around acting all weird and stuff and, you know, hilarious. And he stuck in character and it was very impressive, but it was also very, like, taxing. The director, the co-stars, the producers, they were having a hard time handling him. Thank you very much. I'm the foreign man. My name's Andy Kaufman. Then he'd play his um uh his his uh Tony Clifton character. Ah, thank you very much. My name's Tony Clifton. Smoking Tony Clifton. Have you guys ever seen Tony Clifton? He's like this lounge act MC in a faded blue tuxedo, mutton chops, crazy Elvis hair, big fucking aviator glasses, sipping on a fucking Mickey of uh Jack Daniels smoking a cigarette. My name's Tony Clifton. What are you looking at? Huh? What the fuck are you looking at? Tony Clifton. <laughs> Fucking hilarious, right? And, uh, you know, so, you know, I guess Jim Carrey, he was in the height of his fame. And I guess he had to make that decision of where art meets commerce, Right? Is he supposed to back down from the efforts that he was trying to channel with his performance? Or was he supposed to, you know, I guess, in a sense, bow to the corporate machine, the production, the producers, the, you know, the establishment? Which, I mean, is a very necessary element to a film production. I mean, you can't very well produce a film or shoot a film without a budget, without a production crew, without producers, you know, finance. So, but there's this strange teeter-totter, tit-for-tat relationship between art and commerce, right? So I guess Jim was really touting that line, toting that line in the documentary. And, you know, there's a price to be paid for fame, you know? Like Jim Carrey, you know, whoops, he didn't just wind up international box star sensation. Jim Carrey, he was busting it out, grinding it out. And he was talking about just, you know, his years on the come up as well, on the come up as a performer. And he had mentioned something along the lines of, he said a quote, which was really hitting home to me, was, um, you know, when you're in the pursuit of greatness, you have to make a decision. Are you going to hold on to who you are and hope to God that the audience loves you for it? Or are you going to kill off your true self, falling backwards into your grave as somebody you never were? Something to that effect, you know? 
Do you grab onto who you are with both hands, hope the audience loves you for it, or do you kill off who you really are, fall backwards into your grave as someone you never were? That's profound. That's coming out of the mouth of Jim Carrey. Who would know better than Jim Carrey, right? And to hear him say that was like profound to me. And it, it was at a time, it's at a time where it's like, I finally have come to some level of peace about who I am as a performer and the whole situation. You know what I mean? Because it's a grind. You know, it plays on your emotions. It plays on your ego. It plays on your personal life, your professional life. You know, it's a real sacrifice. It ain't no whoopsie doodle. Kind of made it. No, man, it's nothing but trekking, grinding, busting, humping, fucking dog dick, beat down, beaten brow. <sighs> shit sandwich, you know? Take a chomp. <clears throat> you know? Take a bite out of that shit sandwich, retard. <laughs> Don't you want to be famous? And I finally come to the place where it's like, I'm cool. That's like the merger of like your naivete and your cynicism, you know? Naivete being like an openness, a novice, an inexperience, a wonder, a childlike innocence, you know? So it's like your naivete meeting cynicism. Cynicism being, you know, the world is motivated by self-interest. It's a dog-eat-dog world. Get the fuck out of my face. Get the fuck out of my way. Drop dead and die. Go fuck yourself. Cynicism. So when your naivete and your cynicism meet, that's when you become cool. You know? I could wear sunglasses on a podcast and speak on my journey as an actor extraordinaire. And, you know... Be at peace with um, everything that is going on, you know? Pandemic has everybody by the balls, man. All sorts of industries are feeling the crunch. You know, retail, um, construction, entertainment, uh, government, you know, uh, did I mention restaurants, you know, shipping, receiving, grocery, um, police, healthcare workers, everyone's feeling that crunch during pandemic. And it's like, you know, it's no different as an actor. And, you know, I got my cool, I got my calm going on. Um, I'm keeping myself motivated. I'm, I'm looking into ways to, you know, continue my growth, continue, continue my self-realization um, as a performer, actor, extraordinaire, and I'm very blessed to do so. And I thank you very much for tuning in because the podcast, that's also a part of it. That's also a part of the journey. So there you have it, folks. Jonathan Ramcharan, actor extraordinaire. I am also an alcoholic. <laughs> yeah, I'm talking... Three plus years of continuous consecutive sobriety. Yeah. Sober as a motherfucker. Um, this pandemic got you itching though, you know? Every now and then you get to like, you know, thinking about things, right? 
COVID-19 coronavirus 2020 pandemic. That's what we're sitting with right now. And, you know, I recently cleaned and reorganized my apartment. And, you know, I started looking around. I'm like, wow, I'm very grateful for everything I do have. And I'm like, wow, it's a, it's a man cave. You know, it's a very humble, humble man cave that I have. I got my little studio area for doing the podcast. You know, I got my instruments. I play bass guitar. I noodle around on the guitar, harmonica, congos, you know, just my little fucking vibe out pad. You know, so I got my little musical corner, got my studio corner, my bed, my stereo, the fridge, the bathroom. It's all very nicely organized and well kept. And I'm looking around. I'm like, yeah, I got a little bit of a man cave. That's when the cravings start. Did you hear that? You, you, you can hear my esophagus. There was a little bit of a squirt there, like, like a little grumble. You can even hear my esophagus pucker up. <laughs> my mouth starts watering. You know, it's the drunk in me, you know. I start looking around at the little man cave, and I'm like, have a drink. Have a drink, Jonathan. Have a drink. I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> and, you know, it wasn't nothing serious, but... That's like the reminences of a dead past. The reminences, the remnants of a dead past. You remember that, hey, there was a time when I used to drink every single day. And there was a time when I was homeless. I lived in a men's shelter. You know, we, we, we would drink at the laundromat. You know, if you live in a big city, you might be aware that laundromats are just like an open room of laundry machines that are unattended. So it's a strange thing in the street community where people are just looking for a place to sit down and, you know, shoot up or sit down and crack a beer. So it's like back in my homeless days, there was a time when we used to go to the laundromat to drink beer, you know, sitting on a park bench, sitting in a dirty, dingy fucking men's shelter, you know, walking down the street, cracking a beer. <laughs> you know so it's like just a quiet spot to get drunk in obscurity was so valuable in the world of the afflicted alcoholic and that came to mind as I was cleaning out my man cave I'm like look at this place you know I could just go get like you know, a 2-4, 24-pack of beer, pack of cigarettes, a little bit of ganja. You know, I could roll I could roll away like a roll of blade till my eyes roll back in my skull for days, as D12 would say, right? I could just get fucked, right? Who would know? Who would care? I was, looking around, I was looking around my man cave, and I'm just like, damn. You know, as humble as it is, I was looking around my man cave, I'm like, wow. This all disappears when I get to drinking, because it's like... Ah, it's just not a good look for me. Um, I got the condition of alcoholism, the two-part. Number one, if I take a drink of alcohol, my body breaks out into a craving, and I can't safely say when I'll stop. And number two, the mental obsession. When I am in active drinking mode, my mind is mentally obsessed with alcohol. Every thought is revolving around alcohol, more or less. And today I'm relieved of that. And if you're out there and if you're struggling and during pandemic, you're looking for some change, now's the best time. Please, uh, perhaps consider 12-step recovery. That's what I did.
Um, 12 step meetings at the moment are closed due to pandemic social distancing, but there are applications like zoom Z O O M zoom. You can catch an online meeting or you can always get information on YouTube online websites, you know, just type in 12 step recovery and something will come up and, um, you know, and you can get information that way. And what 12 step recovery is, is they're basically meetings that you can attend of your own timetable of your own free will. There are no dues, no fees, no emphasis on religion, no emphasis on God. Nobody's interested in your personal beliefs. It's purely about recovery. You go to these meetings, you practice various steps of, reco of recovery, 12 step recovery, various steps of recovery. And day by day, your days add up. Then one day you find yourself in a new life. And it's a blessing. It truly is. And, you know, you'll be able to look around your man cave or your woman cave, <laughs> your female cave, your, um, <laughs> would that be an insult? How's your cave, baby? Fuck you. <laughs> Easy. <clears throat> you'll be able to look around the old cave and um, be grateful for it and be protective of it. You know, you're a bear in your own cave. You know, you'll be protecting your own cave and, you know, you won't be wanting to, you know, piss it all away on some drunken, drunken debacle. Yes. It's a hallelujah. Hallelujah. There you have it, folks. Jonathan Ramcharan, alcoholic. And last of all, I am a stand-up comedian extraordinaire. 11 years of service. Yeah. Yeah, it's a fucking ball buster pandemic. It's a fucking dumpster fire, straight up molesting, you know. We're getting beaten over the head with the ugly, stupid, fucked up, broke ass fucking pandemic stick. You fell out of the pandemic tree and hit every fucking branch on the way down. Yeah, this is fucked. You know, there's like no clear sight. There's no clear end in sight. It's like... All live performance is pretty much at a standstill. You know, people are talking vaccination. If we can get a vaccination within a year, if we can get a vaccination within 18 months, no, we can get it within six months, blah, 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 whatever, you know. Either way, the landscape of social interaction is changed. It has changed. And that's the acceptance that I'm having as stand-up comedian because as tough as the grind has already been it has now gotten tougher because it's like okay now the crowds now the whole safety of the audience which is a real concern is now an issue you know you don't want audiences coming to see you if they're in danger right everybody's got to be responsible so that's definitely a change and, you know, but hey, you know, it's, it's, it's just the funny roller coaster of life, the ups and downs, the peaks and the valleys of any industry. You know, when I first got, you know, how it all came into my mind to even be a stand-up comedian. I was always just a funny kid. I enjoyed humor. I enjoyed 
cartoons. I enjoyed like Garfield, Bugs Bunny, The Flintstones, Ren and Stimpy, Simpsons, you know, all that type of stuff. Um, you know, Looney Tunes. I was all into that. Scooby-Doo. Scooby-Dooby-Doo, I see you. I loved it all. And, you know, people would just say, oh, yeah, you're funny. You should be a comedian. You should be a comedian. I heard that all the time as a little kid. Even to the point of, I remember even contemplating. I have a vivid memory. Do you guys remember Fonzie Bear or Fozzie Bear? I think I follow him on Twitter. I follow him on Twitter. Fozzie Bear from the Muppets. I follow all the Muppets on Twitter, actually. Kermit, Miss Piggy, Gonzo, you know. They all have, like, Twitter handles, right? I follow the Muppets on Twitter. That's how much of a comedian... <laughs> how, how much comedy means to me. I fucking follow the Muppets, for God's sakes. So, I remember growing up, and people were like, Oh, yeah, you should be a comedian. You should be a comedian. And I'm like, a comedian? Like Fozzie Bear? Fozzie Bear from the Muppets? I can't even remember how he sounds. Oh, hey, Kermy. Nice to Kermy. I am Fozzie from the fucking Muppets, Kermy. I got a joke for you, baby. I don't even remember how he sounds, right? But something like that, right? He was a comedian, Fozzie Bear. And I'm like, hmm, like Fozzie Bear. And I remember being like five years old, like, hmm? Am I going to be a comedian like Fozzie Bear? What, 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 what does that mean? I have to wear a fucking tie or a bow tie and a little... Panama hat like I, I was like what so it was in my mind for a while and it I was always like hmm hmm comedy comedian that'd be cool but I, I just never saw myself that way I was a funny uh guy I didn't I didn't know what it was to be a comedian I didn't know how you had to write your jokes and go out and I didn't know how to become a comedian it wasn't clear to me and let's be honest it's still not that clear today but um you know it definitely wasn't at fucking six, seven, ten years old, you know? So, throughout time, high school, college, time's going along. Everyone's like, you should be a comedian. You should be a comedian. I got that so many times. And then one day, I was like, you know what? Yeah. I want to be a comedian. You'll never make it. <laughs> That's the tragedy of life, man. It's like, the second I said I wanted to be a comedian, you'll never make it. You be a comedian, you're not funny enough. What makes you think you can be a comedian? You can't do it. You know, all the negativity that comes at you in life, it, it's the funny, I, what do you call it, Murphy's Law? What do you call it? Like, um, damned if you do, damned if you don't. I don't know what you call it, but the irony in that, it's like whenever I, when, I when, when, it, when it wasn't on my mind, everybody said I should be one. Then the second I said I want to be a comedian, you'll never make it. You know, friends weren't supportive. Family wasn't supportive. Um, the audience was always supportive. I could always feel the audience dug me. But, you know, you know, it's a competitive industry. It wasn't really like I was feeling love from any real industry, right? So, but that's what's got me reflecting on. That's what I'm reflecting on during this pandemic. And um, again, we're in a situation of, um, you know, Again, we're in this precarious situation of uncertainty, much like um, the birth of any comedian truly is, just that birth of uncertainty. And a lot of industry too, right? Restaurants, 50% of them fail their first year. You know, business is hard to sustain in, in a competitive economy, in a capitalist 
competitive economy. You got to be one step ahead of the curve. It takes a community to flatten the curve. And, um, you know, but um, as I've learned over this 11 years of being a stand-up comedian is to always just, you know, smile, grin and bear it, and just keep plodding forward. So there will be some resolution. It's unclear to me at the moment what it is, but as long as I got the desire to continue doing it, which I definitely do, I'm going to keep rocking with it, you know? And, um, hey, you know, sometimes it just all is revealed in time, you know? And that's what I'm holding on to today. And I extend that out to anybody suffering in their industry, flip-flopping during these uncertain times. Hey, you know, all will, all will be revealed in time. Hallelujah. So there you have it, folks. Jonathan Ramcharan, stand-up comedian. And those are the three, the three things that sum me up at the moment. Jonathan Ramcharan, actor, alcoholic, stand-up comedian. So, welcome to the show. COVID-19. You can't get away from it. I'm getting really fucking dog dick beaten to death. Sick of this. I've been spouting, I've been preaching, I've been kabeeking about um, COVID-19 for um, fucking months now. You know? Uh, It's the all-eclipsing story, right? It is the news at the moment. You're going to have to give me one second, folks. I have to grab my cell phone. (laughs) That's where my little um, notes and statistics are. So give me one moment. I'll be back. Wait a minute. Here we go. Okay, here we go. And I'm back, folks. I'm back. That's the uh, name of the podcast in your apartment game. (laughs) All right, so let's get into some statistics. On COVID-19. Because, um, you know, you're probably unaware of this thing called COVID-19. You probably never even heard of it. So let's get into uh, some statistics here. So, as of May 22nd, 2020, coronavirus statistics worldwide. Um... Do, 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 do. Um, I hate when they play possum with you. These fuck, you know, they're, they're really, they're really playing games. They're really playing games with this, this pandemic, you know, because it used to be at the click of the button, you can get information. Now there's all these little subgenres and subheadings and well, like, um, total recovered cases or total cases pending or what do you mean by cases of corona what the fuck do you think i mean by cases of coronavirus how many fucking cases are there none of this pending none of this um pre post blee blah 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 bl
You can't get a straight answer out of this fucking shit no more. Who knows what the fuck's going on? Worldwide cases. Just whatever, cases. You know, they're fucking with me here. They're fucking with me. I don't know why they can't just give a fucking straight answer. Okay, here we go. So, total cases of COVID-19 coronavirus worldwide, 5.11 million confirmed cases worldwide. 5.11 million. There are 1.95 million recovered cases worldwide and 333,000 deaths worldwide. So those are the stats. And, you know, as I was bitching, whining, and kambiking about how they never give a straight answer, um, here's a very interesting article. And this goes back to what I've been saying for months now. Hey, there's something awfully squooey going on around here. Uh, 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 uh. Oh, that wascoey Wuhan wabbit. Oh, there's something awfully squooey going on around here. Uh, mixed Messages, frustration with lo- with lockdowns, fuel some skepticism about pandemic. This is an article from cbcnews.ca. Mixed messages, frustration with lockdowns, fuel some skepticism about pandemic. Science around coronavirus is still in flux, and that has left some frustrated and skepti- skeptical, say experts. Over the past few months, there have been more than 4.4 million globally confirmed cases of COVID-19 and more than 300,000 deaths connected to the disease caused by the novel coronavirus. Stop with the novel coronavirus. What the fuck does that mean? Did it write a novel? The novel coronavirus? What, did it write a book? Did it win the novel peace prize? The novel... P- Stop with the novel coronavirus. What the fuck? Is it coronavirus? Is it COVID-19? Is it SARS.20? What the fuck is it? Stop with these fucking different words. (sighs) Yet there are some, a small minority, who contest the fact that there is a deadly infectious disease spreading around the planet or who object to global efforts to try to minimize the spread and the casualties. Some have even taken to protesting against some of the lockdown measures. Pardon moi if um, you hear some like machinery in the background. Somebody's, there's like a garbage truck or something outside, or delivery truck or something, I don't know. Experts say there are several reasons that account for skepticism about the pandemic, including Mounting frustration as shutdowns continue. The breakdown of trust in government over issues such as changes in mask policy. A resistance to being told what to do. And gaps in a skill psychologists call cognitive sophistication. Cognitive sophistication, which helps people discern what's true or false. Yeah, we're stupid. That's why we're having all this skepticism about um, COVID-19, coronavirus, novel, coronavirus, SARS-2. That's why we're having skepticism. It's not because of the shifting, um, shrouded, 
fucking mamby-pamby coverage, this fear-mongering bullshit, this constant bloated, inflated news cycle of fucking uh, semantics, lies, cover-up, you know? Not, not because of that. Not because of um, the uncertainty and mixed messages. Was it created by a lab in Wuhan province? Did it come out of the wet markets of the Wuhan province? Did it come from a bat? Was it a biologically engineered weapon by the American government to take out the Chinese economy? Was it a biologically engineered weapon by the Chinese government to take out the American economy? Is it because of the Middle East? Is it because of global warming? No. We're skeptical. We're skeptical about coronavirus because we have a condition called cognitive disassociation. What does it say? I'm too stupid to even remember what it is. What's it called again? Uh, we have a gap in our skill set called cognitive sophistication, which helps people discern what's true or false. Oh, would you fuck off already? I hate these garbage trucks. God bless them. You know, they're still at work during this pandemic, taking out the garbage, making noise for no fucking reason. You most certainly can hear this, can't you? Sometimes, you know, the microphone doesn't pick up every little fucking thing. But, like, there's this fucking truck whizzing back and forth outside the fucking window. It's fucking driving me ape tit. But anyways, that's why we're stupid. That's why we have skepticism about coronavirus. We suffer from cognitive sophistication. All right. While some parallels can be drawn between doubts about the current pandemic and the questioning of anthropogenic climate change or the, the efficacy of vaccinations, one large difference is that the science around the pandemic is still emerging. Duh, said Timothy Caulfield a Canadian research chair in health and law policy at the University of Alberta in Edmonton. It is different in that here we have science that is still in flux, he said. You have a public health agency that are trying to do their best with science that is still emerging. And when officials offer differing advice, as happened with public health and the government representatives initially said masks didn't need to be worn by the general public and then later suggested it might not hurt to don them in public, it could erode trust in government, Caulfield said. Are you sure, Caulfield? Are you sure? Or maybe you're suffering from cognitive sophistication, morphinization. Risa Horowitz, a visual and media artist and associate professor in visual arts at the University of Regina, <coughs> Gina, oh, come on, uh, Risa Horowitz, a visual and media artist and associate professor in visual arts at the University of Regina, said the mixed messages are coming from all sides, not just the government. <clears throat> I have been frustrated by the mixed messaging released by official channels about the use of masks by the general public during the pandemic, she said. The messaging has shifted a lot since January and is still divergent across channels. This is dizzying. First, said Horowitz, 
The public was advised to keep N95 masks in frontline workers for frontline workers and only wear masks if they were ill or carrying or caring for someone who was sick. Then the message shifted to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, and other public health agencies recommending faith, recommending cloth, cloth face coverings for everyone out in public. Health Canada currently advises that homemade face coverings have not been proven to protect against the virus, but can be an additional measure to prevent one's respiratory droplets from spreading to others. Ew. Your fucking respiratory droplets? Ew. The World Health Organization clarified last month that medical masks should be reserved for healthcare workers. This is dizzying. Should I wear a mask? Shouldn't I wear a mask? (laughs) This is dizzying. And it leads not only to frustration, but also to mistrust said Horowitz. If the experts we rely on to inform us are not straightforward about the advice offered to the reasons why people like me end up feeling infantilicized. Infantilicized. I know what it means. I can't really pronounce it. You know, when you feel like an infant. You're you're infantile. You're infantile-sizing me. Ah, hell, I don't know. Maybe I'm suffering from uh, cognitive dissophistication disease. If the experts we rely on to inform us are not straightforward about the advice offered and the reasons why people like are and the reasons what? If the experts we rely on to inform us are not straightforward about the advice offered and the reasons why, people like me end up feeling infantilicized and skeptical about all advice given. Hallelujah. Adding to the frustration has been the devastating impact of the economic fallout from the shutdown of businesses and institutions. Canada lost close to 2 million jobs in April alone, and its economy is predicted to shrink, a little bit of shrinkage, to shrink by 6.2% this year. Caulfield, who studies misinformation and disinformation, (laughs) you study lies? Caulfield, who studies misinformation and disinformation, said that there is a trust in science generally, but that some people may be using the uncertainty in some aspects of the research to support their position as their frustration mounts with the coronavirus response. But there's another reason why some people might believe unproven theories about the origins or spread of the virus or behave in ways that put them at risk, such as attending a protest at a time when health authorities are telling people not to congregate. It relates to something psychologists call cognitive sophistication. That's what psychologists call it, cognitive sophistication. Or the ability to think rationally about an issue, says Gordon Penny Cook. <laughs> Penny Cock? Penny Cook, a psychologist and assistant professor at the University of Regina. It's not a basis of intelligence, Penny Cock, <clears throat> Penny Cook said of the term. 
There are just some people who are just better at figuring out what's true or false. <laughs> There's just some people who are better at being lied to than others. <laughs> what? There are many factors that come to play when discussing cognitive sophistication. How receptive you are to information presented to you. Whether or not you question your intuition. How well you understand probabilities and how knowledgeable you are about some of the underlying scientific principles. Yeah, it all sounds well and good, but when you're being lied to, you're basically being lied to. Don't take a fucking psychological sophistication genius to fucking tell a fucking lie from a fucking hole in the wall. Fucking moron. You can think about it as having a kind of mental toolbox that can be helped, that can be used to help discern between what's true and false in the world, says Penny, Cock, Penny Cook, who wrote a 2015 paper on the ability to detect falsehoods. What? It's those tools that help, what am I supposed to do, carry a fucking dictograph, or what do you call that? What, do you, what, is, what am I supposed to carry a fucking lie detector test around with me everywhere I fucking go? Hook it up to the fucking TV? Listen to it, push play when the fucking politicians are talking. Oh, look at it go, look at it go. My cognitive sophistication is really kicking in on this one. I'm telling whether or not they're lying or not. How do you fucking know when someone's lying to you? You don't really know until you find out the facts, don't you? It has nothing to do with your cognitive fucking dipshit fucking theory. All right. It's those tools that help make people distrustful of theories that seem to fly in the face of common sense or that have been debunked by scientists, such as the claim that putting pepper in soup or injecting disinfectant will stave off COVID-19. I never heard that one. You put pepper in soup and then you don't get COVID-19. Like I heard of drinking bleach. I mean, that's a pretty good solution. I think Donald Trump came up with that. You know, have a couple shots of bleach. That makes sense. But pepper in your soup? I never heard of that. That didn't make any much sense. Anyway, um, Caulfield said one of the more challenging things in the fight against misinformation is science ploitation, where people peddling pseudoscience use real scientific terms that can lend more credibility to advice. Hmm. It becomes very difficult for the public to tease out what's real and what's not real when you're talking about things like the microbiome. And you're talking about quantum physics. Hey, I'm getting a little bit of pseudoscience turned on here. Oh, tell me more about the biochrome. Oh, tell me more about the quantum physics. Numeracy and how people process numbers, which is not always rationally, also factors into how facts about the pandemic are interpreted. We didn't evolve to immediately comprehend quantities, said Pennycock, <coughs> Pennycook. Oh my god. Do you hear this fucking truck? It's like <laughs> fuck off. It's not their fault. They got to go earn a buck. You know, God bless them. They still have a job during pandemic, but still, would you guys fuck off already? Just trying to do a little podcast here. Stop worrying about the trash on the sidewalk and start worrying about your cognitive um, sophistication reflux. You know, these idiots probably don't even believe that COVID-19... These, these idiots are probably wearing masks right now. Anyway, who knows?
knows. Um, <clears throat> so, we didn't evolve to immediately comprehend quantities, said Pennycock, <clears throat> Pennycook. For example, in 2004, an earthquake and subsequent tsunami in Indonesia claimed more than 200,000 lives. It was covered worldwide and elicited heartfelt responses and assistance from governments and people around the globe. The global death poll from the pandemic has surpassed 300,000, but may not hit a nerve in the same manner among those not directly impacted. If this was a natural disaster, you would be completely distraught, said Pennycock, Penny Cook. If this was a natural disaster, we would be completely distraught. I thought it was a natural disaster. Isn't that what the information says? It came out of a wet market in Wuhan province due to the mishandling of agriculture, you know, due to the mishandling of, um, you know, cattle, livestock. Doesn't that fall under a natural disaster heading? What else would you call it? Or was it biologically engineered? Was it created in a Wuhan laboratory? Do you know something that I don't know, Pennycock? <clears throat> Pennycook? Why don't you check your fucking cognitive sophistication reflux index, you fucking bonehead? If this was a fucking natural disaster, it is a natural disaster! Allegedly. Numbers also come into play in a different way, he said. For example, if there are predictions that millions of people are going to die from COVID-19 and instead it turns out to be hundreds of thousands, some people might reframe that to mean the virus is not as serious as we initially thought, when in fact it still poses a significant risk. Something else to consider is the language used to describe either the virus itself, SARS-CoV-2, or the pandemic. The metaphors that are being used are really violent, and they're very warlike, and they bring up the idea of threat and uncertainty, said Morgel Tiv, a PhD candidate in the Department of Psychology at McGill University in Montreal. Terms such as invisible enemy or war against the virus can make people uneasy, said Tiv. It instills a feeling of doom and dread and uneasiness and some sense of uncertainty as well, she said. And from the psychological <clears throat> and from the psychological psychological perspective, when people are in situations of uncertainty and fear, there are different things that are driving their behaviors and decision-making processes. Yes. So that was an article from cbc.ca. Mixed messages, frustrations with lockdowns fuel some skepticism about pandemic. And suffice to say, that's some of the things I'm feeling. I'm feeling some skepticism. I'm feeling some uncertainty. I'm suffering from a psychological sophistication in cognitive influx syndrome. And, um, you know, that's a good place to leave that discussion. You know, suffice to say, there's a lot of skepticism. What's going on right now is world leaders are calling on China 
to be a little bit more transparent with the whole situation. At first, the narrative was, oh, it came out of the wet markets of Wuhan. Then it's snowballed into, um, was it biologically generated in a Wuhan laboratory? Was the virus present earlier than initially reported? There's still a lot of uncertainty and skepticism and, hey, maybe it's my doggone cognitive sophistication reflux syndrome. Maybe I'm just a complete moron who doesn't know how to decipher right from wrong. But, um, you know, there's still a lot of uncertainty, suffice to say. Hit me up, jr.thepodcast at gmail.com. How are you feeling about this whole COVID-19 coronavirus dialogue? How do you feel? Do you feel secure and do you feel safe in what the narrative is being told to us? Do you believe in it or do you believe there are other factors at work? Do you believe that we are still in a state of flux science where it's like from a scientific standpoint, we just don't know? You know, from a, um, I guess, theoretical level, we still don't know what where it came from, how it surfaced. Hit me up, jr.thepodcast at gmail.com. Yes. Speaking of wet markets and animals, you know. You know? Speaking about animals, while I have your ear and while I have your Wuhan bat ears perked for um, percolation, yo, check it. One thing I've been working on on the podcast recently, keeping my mind off of pandemic and other things, I've been philosophizing. And it has all come out of this great book that I've been reading, Philosophy, The Basics by Nigel Warburton. This is a concise, uh, comprehensive introduction to psychology. This is a comprehensive, concise introduction to the basics of philosophy. All the basic arguments, all the basic questions, theories, you know, discussion. You can get this book on Amazon for a whopping, uh, I think I paid $22 for it. It was under $30, and it's a great read, and it's it's been um, keeping my mind agile during this time of pandemic. Um, the first two chapters were on, uh, does God exist, and um, right versus wrong. You can dip back into the lexicon of Jonathan Ramtran, the podcast, check out those videos, does God exist, right versus wrong. You know, there's some discussion there. And we move on to the new chapter, you know, which is fitting in this Wuhan wet market era. Animals. Animals. What, what rights, duties, um, 
obligations do we have towards animals? Where do they fit in our world? What consideration... Watch it, you stupid fucking microphone. What consideration must we give them, right? Now, um, again, this book, Philosophy, The Basics, I'll post um, some information if you want a link towards getting the book, if you want to read along, or if you want to, I don't know, bone up on your fucking philosophy. I'll post a link with some information. So this is chapter three, Animals. And this is the nice little starting point here, the first paragraph. <clears throat> and I read, Since ancient times, since, oh my God, it's like a fucking circus of fucking noise out in this fucking, I need a fucking studio. You know, you know how happy I would be to have a real studio? I mean, like I'm grateful for my little home studio. This is dope, but any little fucking bang, boom, noise, clang, boom, bang, you know, it's like you hear everything. It's really annoying. Or maybe it adds a certain je ne sais quoi, like an everyman kind of flavor to the podcast. You know, this ain't no fucking hoity-toity fucking Hollywood production. This is, you know, I'm giving it to you live, giving it to you raw, raw dogging you. Stuttering and stammering like an idiot, sweating. All right. <clears throat> Animals. Since ancient times, philosophers have questioned how human beings differ from other animals. Vegetarianism, vegetarianism on moral grounds is not a new phenomenon. Some ancient Greeks refused to eat meat. It really clogged up their asshole when they're having butt sex. I added that last part. Um, ancient Greeks refused to eat meat. Nevertheless, for several thousand years, the dominant view has been that animals are there for human beings to do with as we see fit. And that includes killing them to eat, aww, making clothes and shoes out of their skins, using them in scientific and commercial research, such as the Wuhan bat or the wet markets of China or these biologically engineered laboratories, you know, allegedly. Um using them in scientific and commercial research, and even in entertainment, such as recreational fishing, some forms of hunting, circuses, and bullfighting. However, since the late 20th century, there has been a significant philosophical interest in questions about animal experience and how we should treat non-humans. Questions of animal welfare are increasingly seen as pressing moral issues, not simply practical questions about farming or scientific methodology. Yes. Animals. You know, if you love animals, you know, these are very fetching questions. So a starting point in the, uh, in the chapter and the question of animals is, um, you know, animal suffering. Yeah, that's a great place to start. A starting point of discussion of how we ought to treat animals is an acknowledgement that most and probably all are capable of feeling pain. Yeah, animals feel pain. You know, you know, you tear a strip off of a pig to get your strip bacon. Where do you think it comes from? 
You're skinning a fucking pig alive. You know? Oink. Oink, motherfucker. Oink. I said oink. You know? Animals obviously feel pain. And, you know, some of the criticism of that, do animals feel pain? Well, it's based on an implausible theory, right? Like, according to Descartes, the philosopher Descartes, I think it was like Rene Descartes, whatever, Descartes, the philosopher, um, he believed that animals don't feel pain. They have no souls. <laughs> you know, which is weird because everybody knows like a spirit animal, you know. I don't know what my spirit animal is. I think it's an elephant for some reason, like a baby elephant. I really feel connected to baby elephants, you know. But like, I, I, I really don't know. But like, you know, spirit animals, people have spirit animals and shit. But Rene Descartes, the philosopher, believed that animals have no souls. Human and animals are similar in that our bodies operate like machines, but humans are guided by the soul. Whereas animals aren't, and any sign of pain is the equivalent of an alarm bell. <laughs> he equates animal suffering to like an alarm bell, you know? Like um, when we feel pain, you know, we stub our toe. Oh, oh, my toe. Like that's our soul representing the pain in our anguish. Whereas when an animal is hurt, it's really the equivalent of like, you know, an alarm bell going off. Like, you know, you know how sometimes there might be a an audible alarm on your computer if there's some kind of malfunction? That's how he equates animal suffering to just like a mechanical alarm bell. This Descartes motherfucker. Given how similar our nervous systems are, some people would find this argument highly implausible and disturbing. I feel that way. I mean, come on. You can't equate animal suffering. You ever see a baby seal get clubbed over the head with a fucking club for his cute little fucking baby seal fur? You know? Die! You club a, club a baby seal over the head, you know? Does that equate to an alarm bell? Of course he has a soul. Those beady little, those beady little fucking baby seal eyes. Of course they have a soul, you know? So, I mean, that's one of the criticisms of um, animal suffering. They have no souls. It's pretty weak, you know. Um, to further the discussion, um, Darwinism explains similarities with other animals, you know. Darwinism explains the similarities with other animals. Charles Darwin's theory of evolution has been important in explaining how human beings probably evolved from other animals. Yeah, so it's like that whole idea of animals have no souls. Um, well, a challenge to that is, well, if you believe in Darwinism, evolution, we are connected to the animal community. As mammals ourselves, right? Isn't that what we are? Mammals? Or are we... What are we? Reptiles? No. No, we're mammals and reptiles. Oh, hell, I don't know. Maybe this is just my cognitive fucking sophistication buzzer going off. But, you know, as mammals, and if you believe in evolution, we are connected to the animal community. So, 
our souls are their souls in a sense, right? And who really knows where souls come from? You know, that's the whole spark of life. That's the really the one scientific, you know, we can understand how the heart pumps blood through the body, how the lungs take in oxygen, shoots out carbon dioxide, is it what it is, or methadone, but whatever, you know, we understand these different systems of the body, yet we can't say where life truly comes from. So it's like we are connected by the soul, you know? And if you believe in evolution, we are a part of that animal kingdom, right? Another further furtherment of the discussion, the relevance of animal suffering, you know? Utilitarianism, the belief, utilitarianism. Utilitarianism, utilitarianism, <clears throat> it's basically the belief that, it's a belief of happiness, the greater good, what is right and what is wrong. And utilitarianism believes that the maximum pleasure for the minimum pain. Maximization of pleasure, minimization of pain. That's utilitarianism for you. So animals may process pain differently. That doesn't mean it should be ignored, right? An animal probably can't anticipate or contemplate like a human. You know, like, for example, as a human is locked in a cell, the mental pain, the mental torture would probably be greater than that of a, you know, let's say you lock a duck in a cell. You know, you lock a, you lock a duck in a cell. He probably doesn't know what the fuck's going on, you know? So like, you know, humans, we suffer more mentally for sure, right? But it doesn't mean that an animal suffering should be ignored, Right? Does the pleasures of humans eating humanely slaughtered meat outweigh the suffering of unknowing humanely slaughtered animals? You know, that's a question as well, right? Like the relevance, it all comes to that relevance of animal suffering because it's like on one hand, we can't ignore the fact that animals do suffer. But on the other hand, it's like, well, Humans, we, we're just more aware, more aware of our suffering, right? So in a utilitarian world, it's the greater pleasure against more pleasure for the least pain, right? So the relevance comes into place, right? Because it's like, well, we say we shouldn't harm or hurt animals, but... Do human beings eating meat, the need for certain human beings to eat meat, does that outweigh the humane slaughtering of animals, right? Think about it. I mean, I personally am a pescatarian. I only eat fish. So, you know, I try to stay away from large animal farming, right? I ain't perfect. I still do eat the little bastards, fish, but... um. You know, that's a question in the relevance of animal suffering. You know, it's like, well, is it a greater good that people should be able to eat meat if we do raise and slaughter animals in a humane way? Because like a big part of suffering is awareness. If you are aware that you're suffering, 
right? Well, what if you raise these animals humanely and then come the midnight hour, you know, hey, look over there. You know, you got like a little sheep. Look over there for a minute, buddy. You know, then you take it out like humanely. Maybe it's no big deal. The relevance of animal suffering. But then, of course, there comes animal welfare. However, large-scale farming, you know, large-scale farming frequently fails to guarantee animal welfare. So even though we do say such things like, okay, well, to justify the animal, the animal slaughter, we will, you know, humanely raise and slaughter these animals as a justification. But how do you really monitor that? animal welfare. Like, for example, I eat eggs as well. Now, part of the conundrum there for me is there's such a thing as free-ranged eggs, right? And um, I haven't looked up this information in a minute. It's been probably like a year or two since I last looked at this information. But according to the regulating body of free-ranged chickens in Canada... There's no real parameters. There's no real guideline. So what is free range to one chicken farmer might not be free range to another chicken farmer. There's no real regulation. So they can just say, oh, it's free range chicken. But it's really just a blanket term to nullify, to, um, to pacify you know, the public. Who knows what they're doing to those chickens? Guess what? Chicken butt. Boom, clack. Boom, clack. Boom, clack. You know? You don't know what they're doing to them chickens, right? Just because it says free range doesn't mean it's truly free range, right? So in that whole discussion on the relevance of animal suffering, you know, animal welfare, even if we do say that, oh, we're going to humanely raise these animals, there ain't no guarantee, right? Which brings us to um, speciesism, you know? We've talked about animal suffering, the relevance of it. Do animals have souls? Okay. Now for a new discussion, speciesism. Now, speciesism is this is the the discrimination in favor of one species over another, of the human species in the exploitation of animals. Yeah, speciesism, discrimination in the favor of one species over the other. Yeah, and you know that's a slippery slope, right? And there's some arguments for that. The arguments for speciesism are animals exist for human benefit. You know, like according to the Bible, according to many different religions, cultures passed along, there's like a, there's like a, just like an underlying belief that animals are here purely for our benefit. We make clothing out of them. We eat them. We use them for our entertainment. Um products, you know, different oil products and stuff like that, like whale oil in order to make like lipstick and shit, you know, like there's just like an underlying, underlying 
pets, for example, just pets. The idea that you would have a pet, you know? Oh, I own him. That's my dog. You know, it's like just owning a pet. You know, there's like an underlying belief inter worldwide that animals are here for our benefit, you know? Bat soup, for example. The fucking crazy, oh, that wascoey Wuhan wabbit. Uh, those wascoey Chinese motherfuckers and their Wuhan bat soup. You know, like, come on, right? We're under this impression that animals are here for our benefit to just do whatever we want with. Make soup, you know? The fucking, the baby seal fur trade in fucking North America. Those fucking barbarians clubbing fucking baby seals over the head. You know, how could you club a baby seagull over the head? You know, as I mentioned, you know, those beautiful beady little fucking, those beady little fucking, those beady little fucking um, baby seagull eyes and the twist, twitching little whiskers. You have to be an absolute animal to do that, right? So, you know, many cultures, North America, Asia, um, Africa, Europe, Australia, you know, Middle East, globally, there's just like a belief that animals are here for our benefit. You know, circuses, for God's sakes, <laughs> a zoo, a zoo. Imagine a zoo, you know, my name's Joe Exotic. You know, I'm a gunslinging, mullet having, gay as a $3 bill redneck. And if you come to the GW Zoo on my property, I'm going to put a cap in your ass, motherfucker. Over my dead body, are you going to take my tigers? You know, Tiger King, for example, uh, the sensation of pandemic, that docu-series, perfect example, Joe Exotic, his mindset is that animals are here for our benefit. Pan them up, cage them up, stick them in a roadside shanty zoo. They're here for our entertainment. You know, that's speciesism. To lock another fucking species in a cage and say, dance monkey? Who the fuck do you think you are to put something in a cage? Feed, excuse me, I have to go feed my rabbit. <laughs> no, but like, who the fuck do you think you are to put something in a cage, you know? I have to go feed my hamster. All right. You know, another argument for speciesism is that animals don't show respect for each other. Um, yeah, animals don't show respect for each other. Why should we show respect for them? You know, you ever see a shark... You know, just chomping its way through whatever the fuck. You know, a lion will take down a gazelle. Not a, not a tinge of guilt. Not a twinge of, you know, remorse. You know, fucking jump on a water buffalo, rip its fucking throat out, you know. Animals don't show respect for each other. Why the hell should we? Well, some people would counter that because we know better, we do have the conscious mind. You know, even though some people believe in the connection that we have through evolution with the animal kingdom, we do have an elevated sense of right and wrong, a sense of moral compass, which we should exhibit, right? We should use. And again, just because animals show no respect for each other, they definitely don't show a, uh, a waste. You know, you don't see fucking... 
Well, that's debatable. I don't know the facts on this, but generally speaking, animals eat what they kill. They don't go around just fucking... And their habitat and their lifestyle don't cause the destruction of other animals. You know, like the, the, the carbon footprint of a fucking tiger is significantly smaller, I would imagine, than the everyday person. You know, they live within their means and that's what they do. So, you know, there is that debate to speciesism, you know, animals don't even respect themselves. Why should we respect them? Some people feel like, okay, well, we have a moral duty because we can think morally, ethically. All right. And then there's the analogy um, with favoring our own children. That's an analogy that they use in the book, Philosophy, the Basics, where it's like, okay, well, we are the species of Homo sapien. I believe, right? Homosexual, homo sapien. We are the species of homo species, special sexual, homo sapien, right? We are human beings. So the analogy they use in the book is like, well, a father or a mother more than likely will favor the success of their child over another. Does that make them a bad person? Does that make them a bad father or mother, you would actually be kind of concerned if a parent was overly concerned with the welfare of another child. To each their own, right? Like, we look out for our own. So is it really that, um, really that unethical, morally bankrupt of us to take a speciest approach in protecting our own, looking out for the welfare of us. I want to eat steak every fucking night. You know, why should my children be deprived of steak just because that fucking cow doesn't want to sacrifice its butt for my dinner plate? You know what I mean? So that's like uh, another argument um, pro-speciest is that, you know, the, uh, the parent effect. To each their own. We look out for our own, right? I don't know. I think that's kind of weak, personally. I mean, just because we have uh, an affinity and a care for, you know, the people around us, our loved ones, doesn't mean we should have a disregard for the suffering of others. You know, one doesn't really wash the hand of the other, in my opinion. You know, we're not completely absolved of of um, of um, obligation and duty just because um, that's not our brother or sister or our mother or our loved one. It's a duck. You know, fuck that duck. <laughs> then we have the counterpoint to speciesism, which is anti-speciesism. The ethical concept that it is immoral to exploit or harm animals just because they belong to a different species. This could give advanced aliens the right to herd animals, to herd humans for food, right? That's a good point because, you know, anti-speciest, the anti-speciesism 
outlook is the ethical concept that it is immoral to exploit or harm animals just because they belong to a different species. And the counterpoint would be, or the example would be, like, um, that would lead credence to, like, let's say aliens come down on the planet within the next couple months, you know, during this whole pandemic. There was released by the Pentagon those UFO, unidentified flying object, UFO. There were those UFO photos released by the Pentagon that doesn't, that doesn't uh, say that aliens exist, but what if, um, what if aliens at some point in history prove themselves to be real and they come down on the planet and, you know, if we are speciest in our thinking, in our thinking, that we are the supreme dominant species and that we should have free reign over other species regardless of consequence, well, by that outlook, that that would give aliens the right to just come down here and herd us, herd us for food, turn us into cattle for their own um, consumption, for their own entertainment, for their own um, production, right? So, you know, that's a very, that's a good counterpoint to speciesism, anti-speciesism, you know? So, you know, that's something to be thought of, definitely food for thought. And some of the criticism, though, of um, speciesism is, um, as they call it, the chimp or child debate. Yeah, that's one of the debates on anti-speciesism. Because it's like, okay, we aren't to favor our own species over another. That would be wrong. Okay, well, what about the chimp or child debate? And the debate they used in the book was like, okay, there's a burning building. And in that building, there is a baby chimp and a baby human being. Roughly the same mental um, prowess, right? You know? They have like the same mental prowess capabilities. So let's say you go into this burning building. There's a baby chimp and there's a baby human being. And you rescue the baby chimp. Did we do something wrong? Is that the wrong course of action? Like, you know, you're anti-speciest. You don't believe in the supremacy of one species over the other. I mean, you see a baby chimp, you see a baby human being. They're both, you know, organisms. They're both of the relatively the same mental capacity. Why not rescue the baby chimp over the baby human? Did you do something wrong? Is that right or wrong? And of course, the argument would be, well, you know, you don't have to be a, um, a speciest to see that, well, further down the line, perhaps... The human baby, the life would develop into something more meaningful. The extent of the pain to the parent. There's just a more psychological aspect to the death of a human child. What that would mean to a human community versus a chimp colony, you know. But like, you know. That's a debate. 
against anti-speciesists. How far do we really take this? Do we sacrifice the lives of ours for the for the other? You know? What what life do we really value if we are all the same? You know? Does a human life have more value than a chimp life? Does a human life have a more value than a dog's life? You know? Food for thought, interesting stuff, right? Which all brings us to, do animals have rights? You know, we talked about, you know, do animals suffer? You know, most people would agree. Some people would say, no, animals don't suffer. They don't even have souls. How could they suffer? Right? We talked about animal suffering. We talked about the species debate. You know, the speciest being Someone who has a feeling of supremacy over other species, you know, the speciest or the anti-speciest that, um, fucking microphone, that um, no species is um, over another, right? We're equal, more or less. And um, which brings us now to do animals have rights? Yeah. Some people believe animals have more than just moral interests that we should respect, such as the right not to be harmed, and that these should be recognized in law. That's the animal rights movement. Yeah, so they believe that they have more than just a a need to be um, protected. They have more than just a need to be, you know, respected for their capacity to suffer. They have rights that should be embedded in law, right? Animal rights. And that could be, you know, loosely called the animal rights movement. So this is more than just a moral debate. This is like, they should be protected in law. Like you might be able to see a chimp in a fucking tuxedo in a courtroom. I object. I object. You know, you might see a chimp dressed up as a lawyer or something. You know what I mean? Like they believe that there is more than just a moral duty or a moral concern that should be given to animals. They should be um, protected in the court of law, animal rights. Well, criticism to animal rights is like, um, well, rights imply duties. (laughs) Duty. (laughs) could be doo-doo animal rights implies duties right animals are incapable of understanding language to communicate rights and duties that come from them so against that attack it could be argued that some humans are incapable of having duties but they still have rights right so there's all these semantics right where it's like okay well if an animal is to have rights it's implied that they can have duties to sustain those rights, you know? With rights come duties. You got to pay the duties of the rights in extent, in an extent, to an extent, right? You know, like if you're a part of a trade union and you have trade rights, well, you pay your duties. You're part of the, you're part of the union, right? 
Well, if you have rights as a human being, well, then you have rights. You have the duty to fulfill the other rights of being a human being, right? Like, if you're going to sit here and cry human rights, well, then you have the duty to um, act in a civil way to uphold the rights of a civil community. So it's like rights imply duties, right? But then the, the argument, the counter argument is, well, you know, there are human beings that have rights that are incapable of fulfilling duties, such as, you know, a person on life support, um, people who are mentally disabled, things along that late nature. You know, they still have rights, but they're, they're incapable of, um, you know, fulfilling duties, certain duties, you know, children as another example, right? Now, there are such things as indirect duties to animals, right? Why am I smacking this thing? This is like the 126th episode. This is like the most I've ever... I've smacked this fucking thing back and forth. It's a little sexual frustration probably going on, right? Probably because of pandemic. A little sexual frustration, smacking it around. But I don't know what's going on here. 126 episodes in, never did that. All of a sudden now I'm fucking Mr... I'm fucking Ike Turner here on the microphone. Fuck off me, right? Indirect duties to animals. Although it is wrong to harm animals in many circumstances, the wrongness lies in our duties to ourselves and to other people, not in any duties we have towards animals. Harm towards animals can lead to harmful behavior towards our own kind. Yeah. So that's the indirect duties approach to um, animal rights, that we have an indirect duty to treat animals well, because that in turn will um, have a moral compass to us as a community, a human being community, a moral compass that we should be um, considerate of human rights human suffering, right? There's something kind of unsettling to to a person who would willingly torture and cause suffering to an animal. You know, a logical assumption might be that, okay, well, if you can torture and mistreat an animal, that's a step towards torturing and mistreating a human being. So we have an indirect obligation an indirect duty to the animal community to treat them well because it could sour and poison our own community towards each other, right? Well, some of that criticism is like, well, it's implausible, the implausibility of it. While this behavior could be bad for the perpetrator and possibly the human community, it is a cruel view that an animal's suffering is irrelevant, right? Like, it's implausible in that nature, right? Because it's like, yeah, like even though if you torture an animal, that might lead to the torture of a human, it's still implausible and it's still kind of cruel to see that as the only reason not to torture animals, like the indirect approach, as if, a su- as if an animal's suffering in of itself is irrelevant. Like, you know, sure, the animal's crying and wincing. 
beating a puppy. Oh, yeah, I mean, sure, the, the fucking puppy is crying and wincing, it's, but it's kind of irrelevant. What's really important is that we don't beat puppies because it might encourage us to beat our wives, right? Like, that's the implausibility of that theory, the indirect duty to animals, because it's like, well, it kind of paints animal suffering in an irrelevant light. Which, to any reasonable person, is kind of disgusting. I mean, personally, I believe animal suffering is a relevant consideration. You know what I mean? In of itself, you know, the suffering of an animal. And also, um, and, and another criticism of the indirect duties to animals uh, argument just because like for example just because veal farming is cruel towards calves it doesn't necessarily prove that veal farmers are in turn cruel to the human community yeah like for example like um some people like veal tenderized cattle baby calves they raise them in a box they don't get sunlight they don't get any um any space to move they're just, they're just completely raised for the gratification of the gluttonous human gullet, right? It's disgusting, really. Some people like veal. But that's not to say because a human being could be so cruel and unfeeling to raise veal, to have a veal farm. It's not to say that they would in turn be so unfeeling to a human community, right? I'm sure there are a lot of veal farmers out there that aren't, you know, sadistic and unfeeling to, towards, you know, a human community, but towards a calf, a defenseless, you know, baby cow, they could do all sorts of unthinkable cruelty, Right? And that's just one example, but it spreads to many. I mean, there's a lot of unethical practices that occur in the farming of animals. It doesn't necessarily conclude that these farmers then in turn are, you know, you know, homicidal, you know, unfeeling, uncaring towards, you know, a human element. Yes. So this is all very interesting stuff. Um, animals. Yeah. And again, I'll point out, um, I will uh, put the information for the book, Philosophy, The Basics by Nigel Warburton. Nigel Warburton. I'll get you that information. You can check the book out if you like. And it's been a book that's been, you know, exciting a lot of thought in me. You know what I mean? Definitely during this time, keeping it, keeping my mind off of everything that's in the news, you know? Just a different channel of thought, you know? Some of the criticism of philosophy is that it's pointless, it's meaningless, it accounts for nothing. But then again, um, to a person with cognitive sophistication, um, you may want to think about the questions of the day, 
the concepts of our time. And this book, again, Philosophy, The Basics by Nigel Warburton, has been, you know, instrumental in, you know, giving me food for thought during this pandemic. And going forward, what I'm doing is I'm keeping on my toesy posies, you know, I'm working hard at my, um, my health, keeping myself um, active, going for jogs, push-ups, sit-ups, um, maintaining a healthy diet, keeping focused on my performing career. And I'd like, a, I'd like to, again, extend that to all of you out there during this time. Um, keep fit, keep focused, and, you know, this too shall pass. We're on the mend. The curve is flattening. Hallelujah. It's your old chuckle buddy. Guess who? Jonathan James Ramcharan. Reporting live for duty on this magnificent May 22nd in the year of our Lord, 2020. Yes. Skepticism in government. What do you think about the handling of COVID-19 coronavirus? Are we getting all the facts? There, are, there is undeniably an element of people who are feeling um, uncertain and skeptical in the whole um, dialogue of this situation. Hit me up, jr.thepodcast at gmail.com. What do you think about the matter? Um, you know, animals. Where do they fit in our society? Do they have rights? Should we be concerned with their welfare? Do they suffer? Do they have souls? You know? Hit me up, jr.thepodcast at gmail.com. I'm available on multiple platforms. iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, you know? YouTube's got the uh, video version of the podcast. I got my website, jonathan-ramcharan.com. You can check me out at all those platforms, you know? If you're enjoying the show, please do tell a friend. It helps out. You know, help my black ass out for God's sakes, right? All right, folks. Till next time, you live it, you love it, you realize it. All right? Peace.